tonight, I want to talk about common traits of false religions on this first screen because you're going to see some very common traits with religions and cults that are not Christian. And I want to talk about four common traits that you're going to see through every single false religion or cult that you run across. Let me put the first four of them up there. First of all, you're always going to see a distortion of God and his character. By definition, a false religion or a false cult or the occult is something that distorts the character of God, who he is and what he has done. You're going to see also a distortion of the human condition. You're going to see that especially tonight when we look at Hinduism and Buddhism. In fact, in both of those Eastern religions, to them, sin is not even real. It is an illusion. Okay, So that's definitely a distortion of the human condition. We are, in fact, wretched sinners. You're also going to see a distortion of the person and work of Christ, especially tonight looking at Islam. Who do they believe Jesus is? Well, they believe he's merely a prophet, but he's not the Son of God, and he's certainly not God himself. And finally, you're going to see always a distortion of the appropriation of Christ's work. We're going to try to fit in Catholicism next week. And, of course, you remember one of the major debates uh, between the Reformers and the Catholics was justification by faith alone. Every false cult and false religion will somehow pervert that as well. So let me boil it down to one big idea. The difference between the Christian gospel and every other religion or cult. And I had to think about this. I wanted to make sure. I sat there and I thought and I thought. I thought at night. I thought at three in the morning. And I thought, is there any exemption to this? And I don't think there is. The primary difference between the Christian gospel and every other religion or cult is the difference between imputed righteousness through Christ and an inherent righteousness that comes from within. So on the right-hand side here, think about every other religion, Islam, Catholicism, Buddhism, Hinduism, the emerging church, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, Christian science, whatever it is, they believe in an inherent righteousness, a righteousness that comes from within, something that we do where righteousness wells up from within our core, whereas Christianity is based on the imputed righteousness. That means a righteousness that is foreign to us, that is given to us by Christ. So think of the cross and the great transaction. What happened on the cross was we imputed something we couldn't have, namely our sin. Christ made propitiation and atonement for that. And he gave us something that we necessarily had to have, which is a righteousness. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, So this is the primary difference. Imputed righteousness, completely of Christ, or inherent righteousness. And that is the divide between the Christian gospel and every other religion. So tonight, we're going to be looking, first of all, at Islam. And of course, that does not mean the religion of peace, as politically correct as that may feel. It does, in fact, mean submission. And interestingly enough, Islam is a religion that is the antithesis and the opposite, um, really, of the gospel. If you think about this, friends, I was flying on September 11th, and I had to use that event to witness to fellow pilots and flight attendants. And I want you to think about that event where we were struck on 9-11 by people who believed that man can die for God to earn salvation, and they struck a country that was founded by people that taught that God died for man. It's completely opposite. Yet, in our culture, people are saying they're both equal. They're both the same, right? Well, that's, ter- that's crazy. That's crazy talk because they're complete opposites, all right? And that's what we're going to see tonight. So what I want to do is I want to give you a brief history 
of Islam. And I want to help, I want to, what I want to do through this lecture is I want to help you see kind of the overall view of these religions. But then at the end, I'm going to give you some concrete things that you can bring with you out in the street, some things that are very helpful that you can actually use to witness. Okay, that's my goal in this, all right? So I want to be both comprehensive yet very helpful, all right? So let's start off with a brief history. Islam starts in 570 A.D. Muhammad, he's born in Mecca. Now, where is Mecca? It is in the Arabian Peninsula. It is uh, 210 miles south-southwest of Medina, and just to the west of Mecca, I'm thinking 60 miles, maybe 40 miles, would be the Red Sea. Okay, so I don't know if you guys... I, I'm sorry I don't have a map, I should have put, but I couldn't fit one on here. So that's where it is, that's where he's born. When he's little, or actually even before he's born, his father dies, Abdallah, and Muhammad is raised by his uncle, Abu Talib. He becomes, this is Muhammad now, he becomes a camel driver in the caravans to Syria, and he is illiterate. He can't read or write. Now that comes into play when he starts putting the Quran together because I believe it's his wife that actually puts it together. And sure enough, here she is. In 595, Muhammad is 25 years old and he marries Khadija. She's a 40-year-old wealthy widow. You might say he married up. I did as well, so that's not a problem. Uh, a wealthy widow, 15 years his senior. Okay. Now again, Khadija, she is very... Um, she comes from a different background. She is literate, and I believe she is the one that actually ends up writing a lot of the things that he says down. And she is the one that puts her faith into him to kind of convince him that he's a prophet because a lot of his friends, they believe he's cracked. And I, I think he's cracked too. Okay, And we'll see the evidence for that. But nonetheless, she is the one who is prompting a lot of his, um, the notions about himself that he is in fact a prophet. Now, when we get to 610, this is the time where the the Quran comes down from heaven, allegedly. During Ramadan, which is our June or July, Muhammad claims to have a revelation from the angel Gabriel. Muhammad believes he is called to be a warner, and that's the term they use, or a prophet to the Arab people. And as you're going to find out, there's a friend of his who's actually an Ebionite, I'm going to be talking about this, who convinces Muhammad that what he is is a modern-day prophet for the Arabs. Okay, And I'll talk about how Ebionism, which is a heresy that would have been in his time, modern, Jews held to it. It was a, a heresy where they denied the deity of Christ. You're going to see that actually informs a lot of the theology of Islam. Now, in 619, Khadijah dies. Muhammad then takes many wives, including eight-year-old Aisha, and begins preaching one God. But this one God is actually Allah, a moon God. And I'm going to show you he comes from a pantheon of gods. So this is really paganism. What... what Muhammad did, you guys, is there was a pantheon of gods that they worshipped, and he basically wanted to be like the Jews and the Christians who had one god, so he lops off all the other gods except Allah. All right? Now, the other thing, the reason why I mentioned that he takes these wives, including an eight-year-old, that's not politically correct either. And that's something a lot of the people in our general public, they don't realize. that This, this is fairly scandalous. He takes an eight-year-old to be his wife, and again, polygamy is celebrated within the Quran. And then we get to 622, the Hijra, which is a flight to Yathrib. Now, what is Yathrib? Well, it's simply the name of Medina before it becomes Medina. So when Muhammad shows up in Medina, it's renamed Medina, and it's called the, which literally means the city of the prophet. Okay? Now, he does this with 150 followers. This is regarded as the start of Islam as Muhammad raises several armies to fight the Meccans. Now, again, he's a native-born Meccan, but he is upset because they are not receiving his message. Okay, so he becomes very angry. 
So again, during this whole period, he is getting constant revelation, supposedly from Allah. We know it's actually from Satan, but he believes it's from Allah. So he gets this revelation all the way to his, really his death in 632. Now in 622 to 628, he launches a, periods of, a period of raids over 59 caravans for booty and executes 700 Jews and takes their goods. The Jews are actually in Medina, and he expected them to submit and to believe that he is, in fact, a valid prophet? Well, they simply weighed his teachings in light of Torah. They put in the old Deuteronomy 18, whether you know, to test for a true prophet, and they knew he was a false prophet, and he becomes angry with them, and so he lashes out against them and kills over 700 of them. Now, he fights several wars. He declares a 10-year truce in 628 called the Hudaybiyah. Okay, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that quite right. You've got to say it a little bit faster to sound good. Hudaybiyah, okay? Okay, so if you say it fast, then you sound like you're saying it right. Um, but now I want to mention this real quick because this actually plays a part in Islamic doctrine today. Um, so, for instance, when Yasser Arafat, do you guys remember when he signed that Oslo Accord with Ehud Brock? Remember Clinton was all excited because he thought he had, as Neville Chamberlain said, secured peace in our time? <laughs> real funny, right? Well, here's what Yasser Arafat, within hours of him signing the Oslo Accord, what he did is he ended up telling the Arabs and the Palestinians that, no, 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 I'm simply enacting the doctrine of Hudaybiyah, which means I made a truce, but we're going to rearm during the truce, and then I'm going to break it. And sure enough, what do we see today? Well, we've had about how many thousands, 12, 13, 14,000 rockets from Gaza Strip, which is a later development, launched against Tarot and cities in Israel. So that's exactly what Muhammad does in 630, Muhammad breaks his truce and attacks Mecca with 10,000 men, forcing all to accept Islam, and he destroys the idols of the Kaaba. Now, what is the Kaaba? Well, the Kaaba is in Mecca. It is actually, most people believe it's just who aren't Muslims, it's a meteorite, okay? And the Muslims started worshiping this meteorite. Now, remember, the Muslim, this is prior to the Muslims. Let me backtrack. This is well before Islam comes on the scene the people of his tribe and the other Arabs and surrounding tribes, they worship this meteorite and they end up building this pantheon of gods. So that's what the Kaaba is. It's the center rock. Okay? And they still, on their hajj, they still go see it today. Okay? So that's what it is. Now, realize, friends, this whole idea of Muhammad breaking his truce, that is still in their theology today. So it is actually a good thing when Muslims will pull the wool over your eyes. Okay, that's a virtue. So you and I as Christians, we have to be aware of that because you and I believe, no, it's, we have to tell the truth, we have to be people of virtue, but to them, especially to infidels, it is a good thing, it's praiseworthy if they can pull the wool over your eyes. So always be aware of that, okay? And again, they would say, who'd I be okay? So in 632, finally, Muhammad dies after his pilgrimage, the Hajj to Mecca. He is 62 years old at that point, and again, that's why they celebrate the Hajj and people travel to Mecca and they have to do that at least once in their life if they can afford it. Okay, now I want to talk about the influences on Muhammad's theology because what I'm going to show you again is a lot of this comes from two sources. First of all, his theology comes from paganism and it comes from this Ebionite heresy. Let me show you how. First of all, again, his tribe, the Quraysh, uh, they were custodians of the Kaaba with 360 gods. And again, Allah was the chief moon god. And that is why they have the crescent moon. Okay, So the crescent moon is merely a symbol of this moon god. And again, the moon god ends up having relations with the sun god, 
convenient, right? And then the sun god has three children, okay? Well, he discards all of the other gods except Allah, and then he says, ah, I have one god, and we have one god, just like the Christians and the Jews, especially the Jews, because he actually views us as being polytheistic. Now, here he has an Abionite friend. And again, Abionites were Jews. It was a Jewish sect that taught, yes, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, okay, but he is not God. All right? And actually, they question his uh, virgin birth, whereas the Muslims accept his virgin birth. So I don't know how that played out. But you're going to see a lot of the theology that the Ebonites have end up being brought in to Islamic theology. And it happens through this man named Varaka ibn Nafal. Now, this man is a personal friend, and he is another man who believes that Muhammad is, in fact, a prophet. So him and Khadija, his first wife, are the, probably the two best influences if you're a Muslim, that is, on Muhammad. So this Ebionite theology, first of all, they believe Jesus is a great prophet, but again, it's the Muslims disagree with them here because the Muslims believe that Jesus actually is born of a virgin and did miracles, but he's not God. And this idea that he's not God is strictly Ebionite. And then they also said, yes, Jesus was not crucified or resurrected. Now, why would Jews want to say that Christ is not crucified or resurrected? Because, again, that's blasphemous to the Jews. Their Messiah is a Messiah of glory, a Messiah, certainly that wouldn't be hung on a tree because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, right? So again, the Ebionites say, no, he wasn't crucified and he was not resurrected because there'd be no need for a resurrection, right? So he was not God. And these, again, these Ebionites, they're really legalists who taught that the Apostle Paul had corrupted the New Testament. So when you and I are out witnessing and we bring up the New Testament, ironically, the Muslims, they have the same idea or views regarding the New Testament as the Ebionites. They believe it's corrupted by Paul. So what you're going to see is when I get into the discussion about how are we going to witness to these people, it should be, first of all, using the Old Testament. Okay? Why? Because they believe the New Testament has been perverted. But yet the gospel, friends, is in the Old Testament too, and so we can beat them at their own game. So we want to establish the Old Testament first. All right? Now, let me continue on with Islamic theology. Let me talk about their sources or their reading material. Where do they get all their information? Well, first of all, the Quran. These, they believe, are the very words of Allah, very similar to what we would believe about the Bible. However, they almost have a view of it where it's almost, the Quran itself is almost supernatural. Okay, and they have to handle it the right way. And to be honest with you, I don't know how that is. It's 114 surahs. It's four-fifths the size of the New Testament. And these surahs, what's so frustrating to scholars about them is they're arranged not chronologically, but from the largest to the least. So your largest surah or chapter would be the first one, and they just get smaller until you get to 114. And so when you're reading it, you can't tell where you are in the chronology of his life. You can't tell any um, development of his theology. You just can't tell. And in fact, 20% of the Quran is regarded by scholars as unintelligible. They have a lot of problems with their manuscript evidence. A lot of scholars believe 25% of the Quran is simply just not available any longer. So anyway, with that, there's a lot of problems with the Quran. I don't have time to go into it in any more detail, but just realize that it's very frustrating to scholars to even figure out what, in fact, Allah was teaching through Muhammad. The next source is the Hadith. These are the teachings of Muhammad. And then we have the Sunnah, which are the actions of Muhammad. Okay, so these are the three sources. Again, the Quran alone is the words of Allah. These other two have to do with Muhammad. All right? Now, who is God to them? In Islamic theology, God is completely transcendent, and they have two words for this. Ahad, 
which means he has no partner, and I heed that he is one. All right? Now, if you, in fact, would proclaim Christ is the Son of God and therefore God, which is good, that's the truth, they would say, aha, you're committing shirk. And shirk is where you're denying ahad. <laughs> In other words, you're ascribing a partner to God. Does that make sense? And so there can be no partner to God, even his son. There is no son for, and you'll see a quote from the Surah. I'll have a bunch of quotes from it, um, or from the Quran. And so God has no partner. So anytime you add a partner to God in their mind, you're committing the sin of shirk and you're denying ahad. So he has, he has no partner and he is one. So he's completely transcendent. What's ironic tonight is you're going to have Buddhism and Hinduism. We're going to go over that. Well, in that scheme of things, God is what? He's completely imminent. In fact, we're God. We just forgot we were God, which is some sort of God that forgets he's God, right? Okay, so in Buddhism and Hinduism, God is imminent. And in Islam, he's completely transcendent. What about in Christianity? Well, in Christianity, he's both transcendent and imminent. He's personal, okay? So even though he's transcendent and high above, we can still know him. The Muslims, they really can't know God. They have no personal relationship with him, okay? So he's completely transcendent. He's really unknowable, okay? And so all alone, and remember he's formerly known, this is a name that's kind of important, his, his name was formerly Nana Sin, and he was the chief of the 360 gods of the Kaaba. Now, why 360 gods? Because the Muslims follow a lunar calendar. Again, who is Allah? He's the moon god. So think of the moon god as a head of all the other gods, there's one god per day, all right? And so there's these 360 gods. And again, this nine of sin, we actually see evidence of him up in Sumeria, where the, the area of Mesopotamia, where um, Abraham came from. In fact, I think there's warnings that we see, and I'm going to show you in Deuteronomy 4, where God warns the Israelites not to follow after gods like this. And I'm going to show you some evidence of that in a minute. But before Muhammad's time, realized that Allah had relations, again, this is the, the people prior to the Muslims coming on the scene, they believe that Allah had relations with the sun god and had three daughters, El-Lat, El-Utsa, and Manat. Now, you're, you'll see these in Surah 53, 19 through 20. Now, there's a reason why I'm telling you this, because in uh, Surah 53, 23, it says this, these other gods, and remember this is uh, Muhammad writing this, they are but names which you and your fathers have invented Allah has vested no authority in them. Now, what I would like to see is that we use this as a reply or as an opportunity to witness to them because we can reply and say, yes, those who invented the pantheon also invented Allah. Okay? So, in other words, what Muhammad is saying is, hey, all these gods are made up and only Allah is the true God. Okay? Every other God is made up. But realize the same people who invented the 360, they also invented Allah. Okay, so why is he rejecting the made-up 360 and not Allah? Okay, now here, let me show you Deuteronomy. And I think this is, remember, Deuteronomy is written before the Israelites go into the promised land. And listen to what Yahweh warns the people of Israel against. He says, and when you look up to the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed in bowing down to them and worshiping. And again, I think this is a passage we can use and say, no, Nana Sin, the relative or what Allah becomes, because Allah is just named after this, this is a God that the Sumerians would worship. This is a God that the Hebrews were warned against. Okay? And I think this is evidence of that. Okay? So, again, we can show them, because remember, the Muslims have a high regard for the Old Testament, and we can warn them that, no, you went after a false God, not the God of Yahweh. Now, again, who is God to them? Well, 
They claim that he is merciful, but I want you to realize that he's really, this Allah is merciful in name only. So for instance, in Surah 331, this sounds pretty good. This doesn't sound half bad, but I think there's a big caveat. Notice in 331 it says, if you do love God, follow me, and God will love you and forgive you your sins, for God is oft forgiving, most merciful. But the problem with it is Allah is also capricious in other surahs, and there is no way to determine if someone is justified as in Christianity. So what you're going to see later on is that their whole means of salvation is completely by works. And in fact, they can never know if they're justified. So whether they're going to go to hell or whether they're going to go to be with Allah, they can never know. They never know. The only time that they can ever be reasonably assured of salvation is if they murder an infidel. Okay, now think about, again, what does Christianity say? That God died for man. What are they saying? Well, man must die for God. Okay, it's the antithesis, again, of the gospel. And, again, I think that that is uh, from Satan himself. All right, so, again, Allah is capricious. There's no way to know if you're ever saved. They have five basic doctrines. Let me go through them quickly. There is one and only one God. There have been many prophets, including Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight is we can use this against them because, again, they have to believe Jesus is a true prophet, but what did Jesus claim? He claimed to be God, and so they're going to be in a dilemma. Wait a minute, how can he be a true prophet and claim to be God, and yet you deny that he's God? It has to be one or the other, right? He's either a true prophet, and therefore he's God, or he's a false prophet because he claimed to be God. So we're going to catch them in this dilemma. Three, God created angels, or known as jinn. Some are good and some are evil. Four, the Quran is God's full and final revelation. And five, a final day of judgment is coming, followed by heaven for Muslims and hell for the lost. Now let me show you their means of salvation. I use six pillars. Some uh, commentators think it's five, but I throw in jihad. The first pillar in the way for Muslims to earn their salvation is through the shada. And they have to say this and believe it at least once in their lifetime. And the Shada says, There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Of course, most of us have heard of that. And Salat is the second of the five or six pillars. It is the ritual prayer. And interestingly enough, the Quran actually calls them uh, for three times the prayers a day, but custom now in Sharia law mandates five times a day. So they actually have to bow at sunrise, noon, afternoon, sunset, and night. They must face the Kaaba so that wherever they are, they try to face Mecca. And of course, that's why when they're in our prisons and they want mats that's set up so that they can look towards Mecca all the time. That's what they're trying to do is always face the Kaaba. So they want to face the Kaaba and they have to be pure. So they have to take a, a ritual bath if possible. Three, they have to do zakat, which is almsgiving. That's two and a half percent of their income to the poor. Now realize many of them get away with not paying this because they believe their taxation is actually a form of this zakat. Okay, So some of them try to get away with it without ever paying this because they believe their taxes are good enough. They fast during Ramadan, which is June to July. And this, again, commemorates allegedly when the Quran came down. And then, of course, the, the fifth one is the Hajj. Every single able-bodied Muslim who has the means, in other words, the monetary means to do it, they must take a hajj at least once in their life. And finally, the sixth pillar, many people would dispute this, but I think we can prove it, is jihad. In fact, jihad, there's two different thoughts on jihad. Some Muslim scholars say jihad is only an internal battle with oneself. 
But the problem is the Koran says much more than that. Okay? What that is, friends, is political correctness run amok. In other words, the Koran itself teaches that they are to kill the infidel. And in fact, if they kill the infidel, they can guarantee themselves at least a place with 72 virgins and a place with Allah in heaven. So let me show you some passages. Surah 9.14 says, Kill the infidels. God will torment and shame them. And then in Surah 48.29, it says, Muhammad is Allah's prophet. Those who follow him are ruthless to the infidels, but merciful to one another. So, friends, what do we do with people in our society who are saying, well, no, 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 Muslims really don't believe that, and moderate Muslims would never believe in this value of jihad? Well, think about in our own theology as Christians, you and I, for instance, believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. We would cite John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me, right? And we conclude, ah, Jesus is the only way. Now, what happens when people come up to us and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. We say, well, don't you believe the text? What kind of Christian are you that doesn't believe the words of our Lord? I mean, isn't that what we think? Well, what about those who really don't believe these words? Are they really Muslims at all? They don't believe the text. See, that's what Osama bin Laden's point is, is the people who don't wage jihad, they're not going with what the text says. Just as you and I would rebuke those who don't agree with our text. Now, our text is correct. We have the words of the living God and they don't. But you see the point? The problem is those who say that there are, in fact, moderate Muslims, really what moderate Muslims are, are those who don't believe the Koran. Okay? That's the truth of it. If you believe the Koran, you'll kill the infidel. So let's talk about the major doctrinal differences. Let's start with salvation. Again, to the Muslim, it's always by works. Here's good evidence of that. This is where their doctrine comes from. Surah 23 104 through uh, 105, Muhammad wrote this. He says, In the day of judgment, they whose balances shall be heavy with good works shall be happy, but they whose balances shall be light are those who shall lose their souls and shall remain in hell forever. So completely a works-based justification. And again, you can never know at any time in your life where your scales are. There's no indicator. You're not born with a, a meter or anything if you're a Muslim. So you never know if you're going to be saved. All right. Let's talk about Jesus. What do they believe about him? First of all, they believe he's merely a prophet. And again, this comes straight from the Ebionite playbook. Okay? The Ebionites, these Jewish people, again, his best friend, Nafal, taught that yes, Jesus was the Messiah, but he was not God. He was merely the prophet to come. That was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. And listen to what the Quran says about him not being the Son of God in Surah 4, 171 to 172. It says, Jesus, son of Mary, was no more than God's apostle in his word which he cast to Mary, a spirit from him. So believe in God and his apostles and do not say three, God is but one God. God forbid that he should have a son. Okay? So right there you see a clear denial that Jesus is the son of God because they know that's an equation to God himself. Well, what does it say? Um, somebody have First John 4.15 open by chance? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. Yeah, so here, yeah, so here we see from uh, the Apostle John that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in you. And obviously the implication is if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God is not abiding in you and you're not abiding with him, you're lost. And so here, sure enough, we see a contradiction between the Quran and the Scriptures clearly. 
And we can say this, remember, logically, they both might not be right. In other words, the Bible might not be right and the Quran might not be right. Now, we've already proven the Bible to be right. But the point is they both can't be right. So one of them's wrong, for sure. It's either the Bible or it's the Quran, all right? And, of course, we know that it is the Quran that is wrong. They don't believe that he was crucified. Surah 4, 157 through 158. This is a conversation with the Jews who killed Jesus to Mary. And so this is how he imagines it in his mind. He says, We have put to death the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the apostle of God. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but they thought they did. They knew nothing about him that was not pure conjecture. They did not slay him for certain. Okay. Now again, last week, remember all the evidence that we had, even from secular sources that said, in fact, Christ was crucified? Flavius, Josephus, we had Flagian, Pliny the Younger, Tacitus. So again, we have all these extra-biblical sources that, in fact, prove that the Quran is wrong. We'll talk more about that. But again, there's a contradiction between the Quran and the Bible. Now, what about witnessing to Muslims? I've read a lot of literature uh, recently because I have to be honest with you, I don't have a lot of experience. I've been with my friend uh, Jeff. We've talked to a few Muslims. I've talked to a few when I was an airline pilot. Here's what I, I want to talk about. A lot of people say, well, never ever denigrate the Quran. Never say anything bad about it. And friends, we're going to have to, frankly, we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to tell them that the Quran is wrong and that it's evil and it's from the pit of hell, okay? But we have to do it gently and lovingly. And we want these people, what I imagine is when you're going to witness to a, a Muslim, it might start in the street, but it's always going to end at a restaurant or at his house or your house. It's always going to be a relationship typically because you're going to have to let these people know that you love them, that you're for them, and that you're trying to help them find the truth. You see what I'm saying? Because you're going to have to take the time to dismantle the Quran is an authority and to establish the Bible because they're saying opposite things. So this isn't rocket science. If the Quran is saying one thing and the Bible is saying another, you have to establish the Bible and you have to de-establish the Quran. So how do we go about doing this? Well, first of all, again, we have to prove that the Bible is God's word, not the Quran. Now let's talk about errors in the Quran. These are things we can actually use with them, and there's so many of them. I just picked out a few but they're really, really glaring errors, and they're obvious. And we'll, we'll, let's look at a few of them. First of all, Allah, remember, he's supposed to be the author of the Quran, right? Well, Allah confuses Saul's army fighting the Philistines with Gideon's 300 men who fought the Midianites. Remember in uh, Judges chapter 7, the Midianites are those who have to fight, and they're to be, um, remember, the 300 men are called out because they're the ones who lap water like a, like a dog, Right? Well, he completely confuses it and gaffs the story, and Muhammad does when he's writing it, and he actually has it being Saul's army, which doesn't come about for many years. Okay, So a big historical error there recorded in Surah 2, 149. This is a doozy right here. This is one that I would recommend we all use. Number two, Allah again is confused and has the Samaritans making the golden calf for the Israelites when Moses is with Yahweh on Sinai, according to Surah 2085. Remember, friends, the Samaritans did not exist until after 722 B.C. How did the Samaritans come about? Well, they didn't come about until after the Assyrians sacked the northern kingdom of Israel, and then they started intermarriage. Okay, that didn't happen until after 722 B.C. When did Moses go up to Mount Sinai? About 1445. So we're talking about over 700 years. They, they completely miss it. I mean, and you can't attribute this to just a mere scribal whoops of the pen or somebody copied something wrong. This is just a flat-out swing and a miss, okay? This is historical error, and I think we should use this one. This is a, a devastating one we should use with them when we're witnessing to them. Three, 
Allah, again, is confused and places Haman by the side of Pharaoh rather than Persian king Azuras. Uh, remember in the book of Esther, the Egyptian Pharaoh tries to build the tower to heaven even though the Tower of Babel was actually built centuries earlier in Sumer and Mesopotamia. So they goof up the story of Haman as he tries to wipe out Mordecai and the Jews. They actually believe that it was Pharaoh trying to build the tower to heaven, so they missed that by hundreds of years. There's just simply problems everywhere in the historical record. Okay, And that's another one that we should use. Here's number four. Allah, again, is confused over the Christian trinity. Again, according to their theology, and remember, this is supposed to be the Word of God, we believe in the Father, the Son, and Mary. <laughs> Let's look at some more errors. Number five, Allah is confused as to whether He created the world in six or in eight days. Okay, so in Surah 10.3, it's six, but then it goes to eight in the following two sections. Okay, and friends, you never see that in the Bible. You never see contradictions like that. The Bible is consistent all the way through. And that is what's so beautiful about the Bible. That's another proof of the divinity of it. It has the same, the same themes. It never contradicts itself. And the history is impeccable. Do you remember when people said, well, there can't be a Hittite empire because the only place we read about Hittites is in the Bible? And now they have whole departments dedicated to Hittiteology, <laughs> if that's a word, right? Because they found, they found the remains. So every time we dig in the ground, we see that the Bible's right. Every time we dig in the ground, we see that Allah was confused. Number six, Allah is confused as to whether he drowned Pharaoh and his army. According to Surah 17, he did that, 103. Or he saved Pharaoh after he repented in Surah 10, 88 through 92. And finally, Allah has Hagar and Ishmael travel not to the Sinai from Canaan, but into an unbelievable 1,000-mile trip through the empty corridor. That's a place where there's no water, the temperature is so high, most people will not last more than hours. And these two apparently travel this 1,000-mile trip through the Arabian Desert to Mecca. He has them leave right from Ur, which is up in Mesopotamia, all the way to Mecca. Okay? And again, it's, it's impossible physically. Okay? And I guess you could try to say, well, God miraculously did something. But again, it's just, it doesn't accord with the book of Genesis. And remember, they hold the Pentateuch, the, the Muslims do, as an authoritative book. So this contradicts, again, the Pentateuch. Um, and I think we're looking probably in Genesis, where would that be, Genesis 21. So again, it contradicts the Scriptures. So again, either the Scriptures are right or they're right. And of course, you can tell um, the way things are going here that the Scriptures are going to be right. Okay, now, um, how else should we witness to these Muslims? Well, I recommend, again, we use the Old Testament first. Again, Islam follows the Ebionite heresy of claiming that Paul corrupted the New Testament and that's a problem because initially we're going to want to use the New Testament. We're always probably more familiar with that than we are with the Old. However, it shouldn't be a problem because the Old Testament, again, is the gospel in it, right? So let's use the Old Testament. Let's first of all show these Muslims that they have a need for atonement. And what I recommend is we start in the Pentateuch. Let's start in Genesis 3.15. And the reason we should start in Genesis 3.15, in my opinion, is because it shows two things. One, it's Messiah. It's a messianic passage because it talks about a person that is going to have to one day come and crush the serpent, right? Yet that person, is, its heel, his heel is bruised. So that person is wounded by Satan. Well, where did that happen? Well, by golly, that happened on the cross, didn't it? Okay? But Genesis 3.15 also alludes to the need for atonement. And then we can pick up on that theme, the need for atonement in Leviticus 17.11, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Again, we see that in uh, repeated in Hebrews 9.22. But again, we're trying to stick with the Old Testament. And think about Isaiah 53. 
the need for a suffering Savior is clearly delineated there, and that suffering Savior is, in fact, the Messiah. It's amazing, isn't it, looking at Isaiah 53, how that points to the work of Christ? My friend Jeff and I, we used that with a Muslim one night, and he actually couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that that was there. And again, they're going to accept Isaiah very readily, whereas they'll reject the words of Paul. Okay, does that make sense? So if you're on the street, go to the Pentateuch and show the need for atonement right out of the Pentateuch. And then also, show the deficiency of good works. Remember, that's what they're relying upon for salvation. Isaiah 64, 6, God looks at even our righteous deeds as filthy rags. Literally, I don't mean to be rude here, but the literal Hebrew is menstrual rags. So that's what God thinks of all of our righteous deeds. Why? Because they're all deficient before a holy and righteous God. Remember, we're not being judged according... If you're being judged according to me, you might be just fine and swell, right? But you're not. You're judged according to the Holy One of Israel. And according to his word in Isaiah 64, 6, all our, even our righteous deeds fall well short. Habakkuk 2.4 talks about the just man will live by faith. All right, Remember, Paul picks up on that theme in Romans 1.17. But again, we're trying to stay away from Paul. So again, show the deficiency of good works that in fact good works will not save you. And finally, this is what I think we have to do, is we have to pull out messianic prophecy. Show them that it was the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12.7 that was to be uh, the Messiah. Genesis 15, 5, do you remember the complaint that Abraham, at the time he's named Abram? He says, hey, I only have the person that's going to be my um, descendant is Eliezer from Damascus. I don't have anybody that's come from my lineage. And what does God promise him? No, the person that is going to be the Messiah or from your descendants is going to create a bunch of descendants or seed and it's going to come from your own body. In fact, in Genesis 15, 6, says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, and then God ends up cutting the covenant. So show them the progression of the messianic promise. Now, the next one, Genesis 17:15 is very important because there the seed promise goes through Sarah. Okay, not Hagar. The promise was given to Sarah. So 17:15 is extremely important. 25:23 is important because there the blessing we see is to Esau, not to or to Jacob rather, not Esau. So Esau's end up he's going to serve Jacob, who is known as Israel. And of course, that really doesn't set well with them. And then in 49.10, of course, Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. Okay, where does Judah come from? Well, from Jacob, from Israel. Numbers 24.17 is the Balaamic promise. Um, 2 Samuel 7.14, remember that is the tribe of David or the family of David. That's where the Messiah is going to come from. Micah 5.2, remember the bread of life comes from where? Bethlehem, Lechem, the house of bread. So you can use all these prophecies. So lead them through and show them you're going to have to teach them the Bible and you're going to have to use the Old Testament to do it. Show them the gospel in the Old Testament. Friends, we can do it. And, um, you know, it's funny. When you're doing this with Muslims, you've got a tough road to hoe. When you get to Hindus and Buddhists, you're going to really have a tough road to hoe because they know nothing about the scriptures at all. I mean, they're completely, they don't even believe in a single God, you see. So... Just realize you're going to have to do a lot of Bible teaching with these people, all right? All right, now, what else can we do? Well, we have to preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Remember, again, Muslims claim Jesus was not crucified, but this cannot be reconciled with the Bible. And remember, the Bible was written by the eyewitnesses, okay? And it can't be reconciled with Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, and Josephus. So what I always do is say, hey, if we were in a court of law and we had a non-partial, an unbiased a judiciary or a, a judge, if we were to determine who in fact was more than likely the one 
We have extra biblical corroboration that, in fact, the crucifixion and the resurrection occurred. So if you were to argue this case in a court of law, you would win. Why? Because you have not only the testimony of the eyewitnesses, but you have corroborating eyewitnesses as well, don't you? Whereas they have what? They have one man who wrote in a desert 600 years later. Well, who is the jury going to believe? Who is the judge going to believe? And friends, what I think is we lovingly present them with these facts across the table and say, listen, I'm not trying to destroy who you are, but we're two men or two women or a man and a woman, whoever, who are trying to figure out what's true. And I'm telling you that, in fact, the Bible is accurate when it proclaims Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And when it comes to the crayon, you're in grave error. Error to such a degree that your salvation is in jeopardy. And we need to be very forthright with them on that point, okay? Again, the evidence is on our side. Jesus was raised from the dead. We have good evidence of that. You can see the previous lecture on information regarding that. Jesus claimed to be God. I think we have to point this out. Again, Muslims are in a dilemma. They claim that Jesus is a prophet, but he's not God. Again, this option is not available to them because he is either a false prophet because he claimed to be God and is not, or he is a true prophet who is in fact God. So do you see the dilemma that we're putting them in? Now, these are the passages I pulled up just from John. And again, I'm steering away from Paul, like you know Titus 2.13 and Colossians 2.9 and so forth. But look at all these passages that we have where Jesus claims to be God. Now, the ones I have underlined, John 5.18, John 10.33, and John 19.7, these are important passages because in these passages, we have the Jews actually claiming that, hey, we have to put Jesus to death because he's claiming to be God. So we have the enemies of Christ saying, yeah, he's claiming to be God here. What's going on here? He's claiming to be God. We have to put him to death. And so here we have the enemies of Christ saying, yeah, he's claiming to be God. So we want to use that, I think, with the Muslims to say, hey, even the antagonists, those who are against Christ, admit that, yeah, he was claiming to be God. So how can he then be a true prophet if he was claiming to be God? Well, in fact, he was a true prophet. He was more than a prophet. He was God and, in fact, was right about himself all along, wasn't he? We have to be prepared to defend the Trinity there is no contradiction, again, in having one God and three persons. Remember that the law of non-contradiction says, if A, then not non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. What the Muslim is going to try to tell you is they're going to try to say, hey, you have one God and three gods simultaneously. Well, no, we don't. Where, why is it not a violation of the law of non-contradiction? Because what we're saying is in one category, we have one God, but in another category, not talking about Godhood, there's three persons. Just like we have one government with three branches. Nobody would tell you, hey, you can't have the judicial branch be government because I thought you had an executive branch. You, know, you see what I'm saying? No, we have one government with three branches. We have one God and three persons. So it's not a violation of the law of non-contradiction. And so we're going to have to explain that to the Muslims. So be prepared to do that and let them know that they're in grave error regarding their logic and finally, guys, we're going to have to be loving and we're going to have to be praying for them. I don't know if it was Spurgeon who said, often it's more important to take the man before God than God before the man in the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, we have to do both, don't we? But let's love them, let's pray for them. And I think when we're going to be dealing with Muslims, this is a long-term thing. This probably isn't going to be, unless God acts uh, miraculously, it's probably going to be more than a 20-minute encounter on the street. You see what I'm saying? So, uh, friends, let's take our break now. I've got a lot to throw at you. I've got to throw at you um, Hinduism and Buddhism. I wanted to cover that and then open it up for questions. So maybe we can take about an eight-minute break if that, if that works for everybody.